This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to the program. Up and at them. Get going, everybody. This is the program where we give you the tools, the insights, the experts. We bring on the experts to talk about, uh, to give you a deeper cut of what's really going on in the news, for heaven's sakes. Isn't this crazy? Man, have you been listening to the news? Holy cow. We we made it to Pluto. We made it. I mean... <laughs> Who even knew we were going to Pluto? Seriously, how many of us had no clue that for the last nine and a half years, we've had a probe flying to Pluto? 31,000 miles an hour, nine and a half years is what it takes to get, you know, three billion miles away. Flew by this morning. There it goes. Got a bunch of pictures. Just like you and the kids driving by. The Vegas Strip. (laughs) Hurry, kids, get as many pictures as you can. We're on our way to California. Isn't that amazing? We've made it to Pluto. And then it'll take like four and a half hours to send all these pictures back. And we've got a bunch of NASA smarty pants waiting for the pictures. And then they're going to have a billion questions that we didn't even know we needed to ask. Would it not be the funniest thing in the world if, like, there's billboards up on Pluto, bunch of people waving to us, hey. Oh, it's super cool. You know what? It is a major moment for America. Think about what you were doing nine and a half years ago. What were you doing 10, 10 years ago? I was 36 years old. Ruggedly good-looking, ripped, abs of steel, buns to boot. And I had my plantar working 100%. Good times. (laughs) Look what happens in 10 years. Is it not crazy? So uh, what do we do now? Now that we've conquered not even the planet Pluto, because it's now a dwarf planet. Poor Pluto in the last 10 years has been demoted. How unfair is that? And now we are about to gain some seriously powerful data. It makes it so, you know, think of that. We've, we've now pretty much passed every planet. That's as far out as we would have gone, right? Big time. Big time. So congratulations to all those involved in that. And again, interestingly, uh, you know, USA, USA, those were the chants that, were, that people were chanting at NASA as we passed the dwarf planet Pluto. And I'm excited to see what the pictures are all about. If we can go to Pluto, what can't we do, right? If we can go to Pluto, we can easily figure out the uh, how to set our VCRs, how to work our way through Dish Network, how to understand Comcast bills, not to name names. But we ought to also be able, I'm sure, to figure out our homeless problem, right? Today on the show, we're going to be talking with Nick Dunn, uh, who is going to tell us about something they've been doing in Salt Lake City with the chronic homeless problem. 
And they have literally been able to eliminate 91% of the of chronic homelessness in Utah, in the state of Utah. 91% of those that were chronically homeless have have found homes and have actually been treated and been uh, getting the help they need to deal with the cause that was causing their homelessness. So we will be talking with Nick Dunn in a few minutes to find out what on earth Utah, why are they, what are they doing, and why isn't everybody else on board doing this? You won't believe it. I'll just give you a little hint. They're giving them homes. <laughs> They're giving the homeless people homes. It is the weirdest program. And apparently when you give homeless people homes, then they actually can go get a job because they have a, a home. They can actually – they have an address. They also can go get drug treatment and they can go get other help that they need. And they can work and get ahead. Simple little answer, right? And you won't believe – yeah, but homes are expensive. Actually cheaper than trying to take care of chronic homeless people. Almost half the price of just constantly trying to track them down and, and take care of them in the variety of ways we have to. Nick Dunn will be joining us, talking homelessness, chronic homelessness, giving us some, uh, some of the latest solutions. But uh, before we go there, let's go to the person who's always at home here on the That's Matt me. Townsend Show. <laughs> Oh, my head, Kathy. Thanks for being here. Kathy Aiken Thanks, and Matt. the Good morning. After years of disputes and deadlines and 18 days of intense negotiations, Iran and world powers agreed to a historic nuclear pact overnight. The deal calls for Tehran to curb its uranium enrichment for the next 10 years in exchange for easing economic sanctions. The accord will also impose new provisions for inspections of Iranian facilities. President Obama spoke of the accord early this morning. The United States together with our international partners, has achieved something that decades of animosity has not. A comprehensive long-term deal with Iran that will prevent it from obtaining a nuclear weapon. Obama says if Iran violates the agreement, sanctions on the country will be reinstated. He also said the deal is not built on trust, but rather on verification. Iran's foreign minister called the agreement a win-win solution and historic. Meanwhile, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said the deal is a bad mistake of historic proportions. Congress will have 60 days to review and vote on the agreement. Last night, Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker formally announced his candidacy. What makes America great is the fact that America is a can-do kind of country. Unfortunately, we have a government in Washington that just can't quite seem to get the job done. Well, the good news is it's not too late. We can turn things around. The 47-year-old Republican governor running for president highlighted the fact he lowered income and corporate taxes, legalized carrying a concealed weapon, made abortions more difficult to obtain, and required voter ID. Walker is also known for his battle with labor unions. His announcement came in the place where he celebrated a successful recall election three years ago, the first governor in U.S. history to defeat a recall election. The federal government brought in a record amount of just over $2,446 billion dollars 
in taxes. That equals nearly $16,500 per U.S. worker. This coming from October 1st of last year through the end of June. Despite that revenue record, the government ran up a deficit of over $313 billion during that same period of time. The largest chunk from the record-setting nine months came from individual income taxes. The son of a Boston police captain has been charged with an ISIS-inspired plot to set off pressure cooker bombs at college cafeterias. 23-year-old Alexander Chicola was arrested on the 4th of July after being under close surveillance by undercover informants. Chicola's father was the one who alerted officials to his son. His son reportedly was obsessed with Islam and, and was mentally ill. A detention hearing is scheduled for this afternoon. The Pentagon is looking into the possibility of lifting a ban on transgender serving in the military. Defense Secretary Ash Carter announced the armed services have six months to figure out how to integrate transgenders into the military. Military and civilian officials will determine new rules so they can serve without adverse impact on military effectiveness and readiness. The ban, which Carter says is outdated, will stay in place until the, stu- until the study is completed. And Matt, as you talked about, NASA's New Horizons probe finally reached its destination. Yeah, made it. Can you imagine? After <laughs> nine and a half years, but we won't know if the flyby makes it because we won't know till later tonight, you know, once all the information yeah. gets back, if it survived it. The spacecraft getting to within just under 8,000 miles away from the planet. And it is, it's so hard to imagine that four and a half hours at the speed Can of light. Can you believe that? That's how long it I takes know. to get back images. I mean, think about like when you've had a really long road trip. <laughs> <laughs> really long. I can I can remember. That can was think of that. nine and a half years, three billion miles. Three billion. It made it. At that fast of speed. What yeah. did you say it was? 31,000 31, miles, miles an hour? That's crazy. So 8,000 miles away from the planet. Isn't that interesting? take a picture, you think, what, what's 8,000 miles away from us where we could see? It's just, it's just yeah. incomprehensible. It really, really. is. Yeah. And it's, but it's, when you think about it, too, it's, it's, this was technology that's 10 years old. Right. Right? So... Well, I'm just amazed that it but can kind of tell phenomenal. what to do. Yeah. yeah. And it, well, it says it's bigger than originally thought. So 1,473 miles in diameter and much more ice. Well, than I guess they, it, they well. need to find out is it purple? Because wasn't Pluto always. They said it's more reddish. Pur- oh, see. They, we, people thought it was bluish gray, yeah. but it's more red. Okay, see, red, that's yeah. a surprise. Very surprising. Because now you know, you now you know, you know it, what it looks like. Yeah, you could send it a better gift. Yep, better gift. Isn't it weird? <laughs> like, and it's to me, it's always sad. We had a, an expert on a NASA ambassador on a few months ago, and when he talks about this, he was giddy, like he's giddy. Oh, sure. And he says, "This will just all this will do is open up more questions mm-hmm. that we don't know." Right. And they're already doing it. Like, there's spots on the planet. What are these spots? What is it? Yeah. Yeah. Liver spots or whatever. Well, I'm going to be interested to see when, you know, the people go to Mars. Oh, because, yeah. Because, right, they know they'll never come back. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So. Don't you wish you could pick the people that go to I Mars? I kind of do, yes. That would be good. Just like if everybody could pick one they are. person. <laughs> we, better not, we better not say names, right? <laughs> That's sad. Oh. Isn't that crazy? Can you imagine telling your family, see ya. Bye. I'm going. Uh, you won't see me again. I don't know what's going to happen to me. <laughs> it, daddy loves you. It's not you. It's daddy. <laughs> Daddy loves Mars. Daddy needs, and mom says dad needs to go to Mars. Isn't that crazy? We don't know. We don't know much. We guess how much this whole thing cost. Do you know how much the whole mission to Pluto cost to the dwarf planet Pluto? Uh, wasn't it seven hundred something million? Seven hundred and fifty million dollars. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But again, let's just be so clear. Back then, that, that was, was probably a deal. Yeah, that, and that yeah. was spent back then. So mm-hmm. we're not even. That's not even money today. 
That's just no, not when you figure that we had a deficit, even though we took in a record number of tax dollars. Yeah. It's just crazy. Do you know what else is crazy? And I think it's this one. But guess how does this thing have enough fuel? Well, once it gets up, does it need fuel? It needs a know. little propulsion, right? But but it needs to go that fast, I guess. But it, it has a nuclear core. Hmm. So to the rest of the galaxy. I just it amazes me that it knows to turn around and send back those the beams yeah, back to back to I earth. I mean, how that far away are they able to? Well, and you think after it's been gone that long, it would kind of get an attitude and yeah, forget no, us. Yeah, I've been at her long enough. But no, but we're going <laughs> to then I guess I guess the thing just keeps going till I guess that nuclear core burns out. <laughs> and so we've just basically sent some nuclear waste out into space. But you know, for science it's all Anything good. For it's science. all good. I think it's way cool. Way cool. Well done, Kathy. Yeah, we're not sending Kathy to Mars. No way. Ben, on the other hand, pack your bags, Ben. I volunteer as tribute. Would you like to go? Yeah, he's our. Tri- he's going to volunteer as a tribute. Wrong. Wrong show. Hey, we got a great topic coming up. Homelessness, chronic homelessness. You know, you see them out there begging for money. Uh, why don't they just get a job? We've talked about this recently. And why don't they just get a home? Well, in Utah, they have created a really successful program called, um, I believe it's Housing First. And what they're doing is instead of setting all these parameters where people have to do certain things and then the government will help them find a home or get a home, they're finding out if you just put some of these chronic homeless people in homes... You solve their problems. You help them solve their problems. Mental health issues, addictions, other issues. It's a powerful uh, approach. 91% of the chronic homeless have uh, been taken care of in the state of Utah, which is phenomenal. We'll be talking homelessness up next with Nick Dunn right here on The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, uh, so we broadcast the show from Provo, Utah, at Brigham Young University's campus, which is just south of Salt Lake City, Utah. And, you know, I've lived in Utah my entire life, drive downtown, uh, and I can see homeless. There's homeless people in, in Utah, right? But then I'm watching a show, The Daily Show, with Jon Stewart, and he actually interviews, or, and they do an interview about a really interesting initiative that they've been doing here in the state of Utah called Homeless uh, Ho- Housing First Program is the name of the program. And it is a program that is designed to help to, I guess, you know, help out and, and fix to the, any degree you can a chronic homeless problem. 91% of the chronic homeless in the state of Utah, the homeless rate has gone down 91%. The chronic homeless people, uh, only 9% of the chronically homeless are still homeless. 91% uh, have actually been helped by the Housing First program, which the state provides to the chronically homeless. After housing 1,764 people, they are now left with about 178 individuals who are chronically homeless. 
Nationwide, these chronically homeless individuals consume more than 50 percent of the available resources. And unless more programs are implemented, the chances of them ever leaving the street aren't very good. And so joining us today is Nick Dunn, who's the public information officer for the Utah Department of Workforce Services. He's here to tell us a little bit more about Housing First Program, the success they're having, and how it might be able uh, to you know, impact the lives of other cities uh, if they want to follow the lead. Nick, thanks for being here, my friend. No, thanks for having me, Matt. It's always good to come down to Provo. What a cool idea. I mean, it seems obvious that homeless people need homes. So Utah all of a sudden says, well, why don't we just give them homes? Talk to us a little bit about how the program started and maybe to just also teach us what's the difference between being homeless and chronically homeless. Sure. So this kind of came about about 10 years ago. There, there's there been a push across the nation to address the homelessness issue. Um, and, and for years and years, people have been working on this. And in the past, just to kind of give some background on, on the context, the the ideology in the past was if you have these individuals who are chronically homeless, the idea was to get them to to change their life first, you know, fix various problems, whether it's a drug addiction, an alcohol abuse problem, or, or any other Mental behavior. health. Right. The idea was to fix those things first, and then we would give them some kind of housing. Like as unit. a payoff. Exactly. Well, that, that didn't seem to be working very well. And so the housing first approach is really kind of a way of rethinking how we provide services to our homeless individuals in our states. And and when this came about, the idea was that if, if we give them a platform first, such as a, a secure, safe place to stay that's their own, their own housing unit, yeah. then they're far more better equipped to be able to change those other aspects of their life. Well, that, does that not make sense? If you have mental health issues, anxiety, rabid anxiety, and you're on the streets, it seems like it would only make worse anxiety. But if you have a home, a place that you can go that's safe, you can lock the door, have your meal, prepare, you know, and get mental health treatment, then you're you're onto something. Like yeah. it seems like a no-brainer. Exactly. And that's one of the biggest things we've learned is that, you know, we know from basic economics that people respond to incentives, right? Yeah. It it's also you could say that people respond to the context in which they live. And so if they're living in a circumstance where all around them is is you know, it, whether it's drug abuse or alcohol abuse or, or any of the other issues that often are correlated with homeless populations. And then if we're expecting them to change those factors of their lives, it's a lot harder to do so. Now with, with a supportive housing unit, it's their own place, as you mentioned, they can mm-hmm. go in and lock the door. And, and we've had them tell us that, that simply being able to go into a housing unit that's my own, I can lock the door, I know no one's going to come and mess with me, yeah. and I'm safe, is such a huge asset for them, even just from a psychological perspective. And you're away from the drugs, and you're away from other abusers and abuse, and you're away from um, – and you probably have a sense of self-worth. You have something that's yours, something to take care of. Now, the critics are going to say, well, how do you how do you afford this? You're just, I mean, you're giving them a house? I mean, that just – that's got to be so expensive. We're just going to – we're just paying for them forever? And that's actually one of the things that's come up so much over the past year or so as we've been getting more attention from this. And as you mentioned in the Daily Show segment, that especially for Utah, one of the big questions is why is Utah, known as a very conservative state, conceivably giving something away to these homeless individuals? Yeah. And that's the key is that we're actually saving money doing it because we did the math and if they live on the street and they are getting police calls or ER visits – 
any of those normal costs associated with that circumstance compared to the cost of a supportive housing unit with a case manager. It's actually cheaper, um, somewhere in the ballpark of about $10,000 per person per year. Cheaper. To give them, exactly, to give them housing. Because normally it was like twenty grand, mm-hmm. And that's what's funny. Nobody would think they're homeless. They're not costing you anything. Well, no, I've been an EMT that has to go on these calls to mm-hmm. these parks and transport them. I mean, just the transport fees, all of those fees, plus arrests, plus other stuff that's going on, plus, you know, health issues. It's costing a lot of money to the city. It is. And and that's honestly one of the big takeaways for Utah is you have you have kind of two main motivations. One, there's this this moral imperative to do the right thing to help these individuals who are down on their luck, who need a hand up. And then two, that as as fiscal conservatives, as state as the state of Utah is often known as being, we're saving money doing it. So yeah. when when you have the feeling of well, it's the right thing to do, combined with it's actually cheaper and more cost efficient for taxpayer dollars, those two things come together. That's a huge payoff. That's a big reason why the state of Utah said, "Yeah, this makes all the sense in the world." And the lives are being changed. I mean, mm-hmm. and 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 when we come back, I'd love you to teach us. What is the difference between chronic homeless and just homeless? Because there's still other homeless people in Utah. and um, But what's interesting is if you're saving all this money, you have more money to go invest now in homeless, not the chronic homeless. And I also want to know, what are we doing with the chronic homeless in these homes? Are they are they able to move on? Are they able to get jobs? Are they able to, to progress? Because a lot of people can't get a job without an address. And you can't get a job unless you can shower and have transportation and It's interesting. Interesting stuff. Again, we're talking with Nick Dunn, public information officer for the Utah Department of Workforce Services. Folks, there are solutions. Not only did we go to Pluto today, we also can take care of our chronic homeless situation and actually amazingly save money. But to do so, you got to think out of the box. That's what we're learning from Nick Dunn today. We'll take a break. Be right back. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show right here on BYU Radio. Friends, who to thunk it? Let's take the homeless people, chronically homeless. Let's give them a home. Do you think that could solve the homeless problem? Well, in the state of Utah, it's actually taken homeless rates down uh, for the chronically homeless down 91 percent by doing a program called Housing First. I would suggest you talk to your local uh, authorities, your local leaders, your community leaders. Make sure that they understand what's going on here in Utah because, you know, Utah doesn't do everything right, but, boy, they're nailing this homeless, chronic homeless problem. And, in fact, uh, John Stewart in The Daily Daily Show, uh, he highlighted it. And they were looking, again, there's a difference between chronic homeless and homeless. And joining us right now is Nick Dunn, who's the public information officer for the Utah Department of Workforce Services. He's here teaching us about his the Housing First program that they've been initiating, which basically costs about ten to $12,000 a year to provide homes for the homeless, which is about $10,000 cheaper than what it would normally cost to handle the homeless, the chronic homeless problem. So, Nick, welcome to the program, my friend. Thank you. 
Talk to us. What's the difference between chronic homeless and, and homeless? So, right, chronic homeless is basically a subset of the overall homeless population. And so the definition is established at the federal level, the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. And basically to be chronically homeless, you have to be have experienced homelessness for longer than one year or four times within a three-year period that adds up to a okay. year and also have some kind of disabling or debilitating condition. And that could be, again, things like anxiety or some mental health issue. It could be an addiction. It could be a disability. It could be anything like that. Exactly. And then every one of the the people are assigned a, a home, basically an apartment. And I'm sure, you know, the apartments cost. But you have a lot of other providers. You have a lot of other service helpers, churches. You have groups, community groups, all these other groups that provide help and services. And it seems like in a way it would be easier because now they just can go to these apartment buildings where all the home, well, the chronic homeless are. They each get a caseworker. And what does the caseworker do? So the caseworker essentially works with them one-on-one to overcome any of the challenges that existed in their life. Remember, that these individuals, when they became homeless or they, they entered this chronic homelessness situation, it's because they were facing various challenges in their life. And so what the caseworker does is works with them, whether it is an addiction or a substance abuse problem or maybe a mental health challenge, whatever these issues are, the caseworker works with them, gets them the help they need, and also tries to figure out, okay, what do we do next? How do we get you to the next level? If it's employment, some kind of moving towards self-sufficiency, it's really more of a targeted approach to really equip them with the tools to change their life for the better. Mm. What are some of the stories you're hearing as as you've been doing this now? How many years? So so this has been going on for about 10 years. Wow. Um, in 2005, there was a – we established what we called the 10-year plan to end chronic homelessness. And, um, you know, obviously we, we don't want to get hung up on the word end because there there will always be Yeah, that's going to be challenges. the next one. Always, exactly. Yeah. But, but that's the key is that we're seeing significant progress in Utah and, and we're ready for the next step. And, and when we see these real results – not just numbers. I mean, the stats are very impressive, yeah. obviously, saving a lot of money, a huge reduction in chronic homelessness in Utah. And probably crime and other offenses and other things. Right. And and these these benefits are huge for the state and for our citizens, but it's also the individual stories. I was sitting in the living room of, of a man who who was in one of these supportive housing units, and he kind of told me his, his life story, essentially saying that, you know, he, he was from Chicago, actually, and... Um, and had a family, was working in an industry there. And when when the recession hit, he moved out to Utah because he heard there was work here. Hmm. And through some various unfortunate events, he ended up in this homeless situation and, and became chronically homeless. And, and to hear that perspective of at one point in your life, you're working, you have a family, things are going well, and then some things can happen that can change that drastically. But then to hear how meaningful it was for him to now have a, a, a home that he could call his own. He didn't have to sleep on the pavement in the cold, and mm. it gets awfully cold in, here yeah. in Utah. And and just having that place that he could call his own, it was such a boost in terms of self-respect, self-confidence, and really feeling empowered emotionally, psychologically to take the next step to to get employment. And actually in these supportive housing facilities, the residents often will work say at the front desk is kind of a first step yeah. and and maybe work their way up within the facility. So there's opportunities for for these individuals to move forward with employment. 
I mean, a lot of times that is there's some event like that 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 then drives you to a situation where you might start drinking again or you might start falling into an addiction. And so sometimes you just need to get out of the situation, then get the proper help and treatment, and and you can get stable again. doesn't mean you, you won't fall down the road or whatever, but – I mean, really, it's just a leg up is all they're asking for, right? Exactly. The you know this this man I was sitting with, he phrased it perfectly. He said, "This is a hand up, not a handout," hmm. and that's one of the key messages we want people to understand is that, and especially in the state of Utah, we're not looking to just give resources um, without some kind of plan of how it's really going to help. And yeah. This is again, it's cheaper than the alternative, and it's really making a difference. And to have a caseworker that can actually find. The person, because they know where they live, they know where they know what time they'll be home. They know what they're. It's different when they have to go try to find them on the street and and track them down. Talk about um, what's then up with the homeless versus the chronic homeless. Why are people uh, so? And what's the difference between just being a homeless person? Right. So, so one of the reasons why we looked at the chronic homeless population specifically was. They actually used a far greater proportion of the services than the overall homeless population because, again, the you know a general homelessness is someone maybe they lose a job or have some kind of medical condition and they're out of work for, say, six months and they're really down on their luck. I remember being down around the road home in Salt Lake and talked with a man who – that was his circumstance. I think he had worked in construction and, and he was out of work and out of a home for about six months. Um, but that, those people will usually get back on their feet and get back into a home. And so that's the difference with the overall population versus chronically homeless. Chronic homeless individuals, like I said, they, they use a greater proportion of the services. So in terms of who's drawing the most financial resources, yeah. it made sense to tackle that group first. Well, and it's interesting because then – so really anytime you hear of shelters, the shelters then are for kind of like the temporary homeless. Historically, they may have been chronic that would just keep using those resources – but you're trying to take those that use the most resources and create a longer-term solution. And now after 10 years, do these people move on? Do you see them eventually move out, move up? It's kind of a mix of everything. There there are individuals who, who eventually move out of housing. As as we've talked about, there are some who say, you know what, I'm, I'm really excited to move back and be with my family or wherever, mm. wherever it is. This gives them a foundation. Well, and then maybe a phone number that. and a, you know, a and job. An and address. A, exactly. Yeah. They yeah. can have people over. How how wonderful, really, just to give them self-worth again. I mean, just the idea that this is your place versus this is your corner. Mm-hmm. And there's so many other stories we hear in the news where, you know, people are – certain businesses are turning uh, – they have the rain gutters that fall on the with places where the homeless go or they turn sprinklers on them. They use all these devices to keep the homeless away. Uh, you're just finding a home. Exactly. It's it's as simple as that, and it really makes a difference. And one of the key things we see, the reason why this has worked so well in Utah, we have so many people coming together, some key partnerships at the state level, the city level, the various service providers out there. The LDS Church, for example, donated a lot of furniture to these housing facilities. And so various faith-based groups all throughout the state coming together, those partnerships are huge, and we've seen that really effective here in Utah. Isn't that interesting? Because, too, I guess it says that the people matter, they're valuable, but all of these organizations want to give anyway. But they, they, a lot of them you would think would get tired of giving if it was if you kept chasing the same rat down the same hole kind of idea. Now it's like 
we're, we're solving the problem. We're actually giving these people homes, something that they can feel proud about. And it's an actual solution. I mean, to me, it's the first time I've heard of a solution. Exactly. And the key now is what's the next step? We've yeah. seen so much progress here. And as you mentioned, the overall homeless population, because the chronically homeless individuals are now in supportive housing, we're freeing up beds at the temporary shelters. So yeah. we're basically freeing up resources to tackle other subsets of the homeless population. Yeah. And now the social workers can go work on their specific issues instead of the blurred nature of it all. Plus, just the even if they were going to use get a home or an apartment and then use that apartment permanently if even if that was the case it's still better it's, it's still, still cheaper it's mm-hmm. half the cost and um you know who they are i mean how many times do we hear stories about somebody doing something because of mental illness and we find out they were homeless and mentally ill and never being treated at least this way they can they can get some kind of help. Are there expectations on the residents um, for what they have to do? Do they have to work? Do they have to – because I know a lot of people are like, you got to make them work. Right. So they, they're actually – there are some expectations. There are some basic rules. You know, any one of us, if we were to go rent an apartment, um, a lot of the same rules apply that you have to be a good tenant. You can't disturb your neighbors. Um, you can't have huge parties where everyone's – and they're doing drugs. I mean, there there's some normal rules in place, hmm. um, and they also it's not entirely for free. They they have to pay um, a, a certain percentage of their income, and whether that's through some kind of uh, benefit like a social security disability income or through their employment, um, and the, it's it's not burdensome at all. But the idea is that not only are 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 they receiving this place to call their own, but they're investing in it hmm. by by having a dog in the fight. Essentially, they know that well. You know, thirty percent of my income is going toward this. I don't want to lose this. This is important to me, and so it. it it's true. They, they're getting their now. They can get their check because their check can go somewhere. They, I mean, so these social workers can also help them get all the resources plus their own money that they're due from Social Security and jobs if they can. And then I guess it's a sliding scale based on their income. They pay right. a percentage. Mm-hmm. Holy cow! It's it seems like a no brainer. You, you think Isn't that, that amazing? <laughs> like it's like, wow, this is. But this is, it, it, it's rare. Why is it so rare? Do you think nationwide? You know the 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 interesting thing, housing first is not something created in Utah. We didn't we didn't create that philosophy or that approach. Um, we just implemented it in a way that worked really well for us. Um, you know, it's kind of like the analogy I used with some of the other day is that. Um, the monkeys made famous the song "I'm a Believer." Yeah. Neil Diamond wrote it, so we're not Neil Diamond in this. Yeah. we're the monkeys. We're we the just, monkeys. We just made it work. <laughs> You're more like a monkey, Nick. Right. <laughs> but is but other states can do it. Well, right. what, what are they running into that would make them not? So the one of the key things about this issue is homelessness is unique wherever you go. We've had a couple of reporters from California come and visit and say, you know, maybe we could do this in San Francisco. The key thing is that. Every state and city is different, yeah. and and we're careful to not tell other areas what to do, obviously, just to share what we've learned and what's worked well. Um, I think one of the key issues is, again, those partnerships. It's never productive to have government service providers or agencies siloed and territorial and not wanting to work together to help people. That's when you run into lack of efficiency and insufficient service for these individuals. So getting people to work together to say, all right, what is the common good? What do we need to do to help these people? Breaking down those silos and barriers is huge. And Utah is is renowned for that. In so many other policy areas, 
such key partnerships working together um, that that could be an area where maybe some other municipalities and states yeah. can look at. We also have a very – it seems like it's kind of concentrated. Our homeless were concentrated in two or three areas and – I mean, I think of certain states where they could have homeless at every beach. Right. You know what I mean? Spread out. And so maybe communicating with them, getting the resources there. Yeah, it's just it is such an it's such an interesting thing. As we wrap up, what should what should we be doing just as the average citizen when it comes to homeless and the and the chronically homeless, when we're seeing homeless people and they're begging for money? What what do you sense and suggest we should be doing to help? The biggest thing to remember is the fight is absolutely not over. Even though we've seen these these great improvements of the chronic homelessness population, there are still thousands of Utahns that face some kind of temporary homelessness situation. We absolutely need people to still be involved. Um, one of the best ways to do that is to donate on your tax return form to the Pamela Atkinson Homeless Trust Fund. Mm. That's been set up. Pamela Atkinson is a great advocate in the community. And that's a way for people to donate some money that will go to these service providers, places like the Road Home and other shelters to help these individuals. And there's actually a big campaign that when you see someone on the street corner asking for money, the money that you would give to them if you donate to this trust fund, we can actually leverage it with other funds and it ends up being a lot more efficient. You Basically, your dollar will go a lot further mm-hmm. um, providing more resources to more individuals. And every state has a Pamela Atkinson. Pamela, for those who don't know, Pamela Atkinson is, has been a volunteer forever and has run the road home and the homeless shelters here in Utah. But every state has one of those and every state has – what would be an organization that they could go look to to volunteer? So the a, a good place to start, obviously, if you go to jobs.utah.gov, that's our website. Through there, you can access our housing division. Um, we don't provide services to the homeless, but we coordinate yeah. with the service providers. And so that's a good place to start um, to just get connected to, you know, who can I talk to? Where can I volunteer? Obviously, the faith-based groups with as as important as their partnership is – that's probably another good place to start. Yeah. Whether you're religious or not, it doesn't matter. Right. Go and ask, how can I help? Every Catholic church in every city is going to have a resource to know where to go. Mm-hmm. Every church, really. Baptist, every type of church. Um, as and, and also, I guess, volunteer. I mean, volunteer money and make sure you're sending it to the right place and volunteer your time, your resources, your energy. Exactly. There's a lot more work to do, but... We're encouraged by our past progress, so I think we're ready to tackle it. It's cool. Nick Dunn, you did it, my friend. Your group, I mean, seriously. And again, it's it's just the beginning. But to decrease anything in government, 91%, and and cut costs 50%, roughly, it's unheard of. <laughs> it's unheard of. Well done, guys. And uh, again, everybody out there just in listener land, I know that was just an example of Utah, but man – influence your local communities, influence your your government agencies to at least go look at what they're doing in Utah. Man, housing first, powerful stuff. Nick Dunn, we appreciate you. Public Information Officer for the Department of Workforce Services. Uh, really, we truly appreciate you. We'll take a break, my friends. Come back. Keep listening to us. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. A little coach's corner for you here. Uh, just a review of that homeless, chronic homeless solution. So many times we just vilify people, don't we? We we turn the homeless into people, and we have to do it. We have to label them and, and call them a name like they're lazy or they're sick. But what they are is they're human, and everybody on earth is about one or two disasters away from that, really. We're one mental health blow up. We're one uh, major health issue away from being in the homeless shelter. So the idea that you can take people, not demonize them, quit looking at them. I mean, how many times have you passed somebody that was homeless on the sidewalk and you felt nervous not knowing what they're going to do, or you cross the road to avoid them, or they ask for help or money and you don't know what to do. What about just helping them receive some dignity again and go in and then find out what's going on with them? Most of these people have all of these other issues going on, from addictions to mental health issues, right, to... You name it, physical issues, substance abuse issues, low educational attainment. They might have learning disabilities. They might have criminal records, poor work histories. A lot of us just assume that if you work hard, it gets better. But if you work harder at crime, it doesn't get you better. If you work hard at addiction, it doesn't get you – well, no, you got to work not to be addicted – Well, thanks there, Einstein, except that in reality, you have an addiction for a reason. There's something going on. Well, you just got to quit. Right. You've got something else going on. It could be you're medicating because you have chronic anxiety. So you use chronic alcohol to create – you're chronically drinking alcohol to, to medicate your anxiety. And now you're chronically homeless. Well, yeah, but people just need to have more character. Sure. And if you were abused over and over and over and came out of a horrible home when you were a child, you may not know how to exercise character. So how many choices does one person have if they don't think they have any choices? One of the, I think, amazing things that has got to be a key to the program that we've been discussing when you can pull that person out and, and isolate them into a room, an apartment, and then have a social worker that knows their issue, and then let the social worker who's trained in this, who's trained in getting the resources they need to get this person the resources and to leverage this experience for the highest good, then we might get somewhere. I have clients that come in all the time And I'm able to help them, and I'm not even able to help them because I know what I'm doing in some situations. But I just have a protocol. I have a pattern, and I help people think through certain things. And the mere fact that they come in and have someone to talk to, and together we can build some solutions, it works. So I think it's a brilliant idea to be able to um, – to help people this way. I love the idea. Um, I know Ezra Benson, Taft Benson, once said that, 
you know, uh, God takes God tries to take uh, the or the government tries to take the people out of the slums, but God tries to take the slums out of the people. All the junk, the the negative stuff that makes us less than we are. There's a way to get it out of us, and it's not enough to just sit on your high horse and just you know, label everybody as lazy or uncaring or not wanting to make a change. A lot of people, in fact, most people just have issues. Who wants to just constantly, chronically be homeless? Apparently 10% still do, but 90% of them don't. So think about that pattern and think about the pattern of instead of labeling people, let's elevate people. Instead of giving them just a name and so you can feel good about not giving them money, why don't we figure out what's really going on with the people and create the change? Powerful stuff, folks. That's the Coach's Corner. Seriously, it's so good to see change that's working. And no, there's, there's good out there. And you know what? It even ex- exists in your communities with your government, your your churches. We're we're solving the problem. We're going to take a break, my friends. We'll come back next hour. More ideas, more tools to help you here on the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. The program where we give you the experts, the ideas, the tools you need to figure out how to grow a healthier, happier life. Welcome to the program. Man, great news. Pluto, not a planet, dwarf planet. Sad. It was a sad demotion. I mean, all of a sudden, you're all excited. You're a planet. You've been a planet your entire life. They, they dwarf you. They demoted you. But we just had, we just had an, a, a probe fly by Pluto. About 8,000 miles away, caught some pictures of it. Amazingly, they found that little Pluto Martian that used to be on uh, Bugs Bunny. That guy's really there. Wouldn't it be amazing what they find there? Uh, Some of the experts are like, this is going to increase. We're going to have more questions after this than ever. That's Is that good? Cost us... $800 $800 million to get this question answered. But you know what? It's still there. 31,000 miles an hour this probe flies and has been flying at 31,000 miles an hour for nine and a half years. Think what you were doing nine and a half years ago. Man, it made it. Now it's just going to fly right by. You know, it's just like a teenager. Doesn't know directions necessarily. Gets within 8,000 miles but keeps flying by. How cool is that, though, that America, we did it. We did it. You know, we could eventually get to Mars. We'll get there. We'll send people there. It's all good. It's all good. This is a really cool, I think, experience that I'd make sure you take advantage of with your kids. And even if you're not a big techie space person, go look it up and just go see what there is to see. I mean, the pictures are amazing. It's a beautiful planet. And what we're learning is just starting to take off. 
There are so many things. I'll bet you bucks your kids already know more about this dwarf planet than you do. But pull up some YouTube video, pull up uh, and just learn what you can and have a discussion with them to think this is to me a great opportunity to talk about goals with your kids because we set a goal nine and a half years ago to make this happen. There had to be political maneuvering to get the money to do it. And uh, NASA had goals that one of the goals was to eventually take pictures of it. Today, boom, pictures are going to be taken and have been taken. It takes about four and a half hours apparently to send pictures three billion miles back to Earth. I mean, it takes me four and a half hours to get my pictures off of my camera. So that's not a very good advancement. Anyway, we got a great show for you today. Not only are we going to just talk about Pluto, what about Shakespeare? Do you know anything about Shakespeare? Do you love Shakespeare? Because I, you know, I never really got into Shakespeare, believe it or not. Never really did. But we're going to have an expert. Michael Barr will be joining us in just a few minutes. He is going to... uh, He's the educational director for the Utah Shakespearean Festival, but he's going to teach us why it's important that our kids, our teens, and and adults still access Shakespeare. A lot of what you know to be the English language and and certain phrases, there's just a lot to know. And uh, he's going to come teach us, educate us, give us some ideas, some some insight into Shakespeare, maybe some ways that... uh, that you still might want to value what has happened with Shakespeare and find out maybe how to educate your kids a little bit more around uh, some of the great lessons that Shakespeare affords us. We'll be talking with him in just a few minutes. But before we do that, let's go to the ever-so-eloquent Kathy Aiken. And to the be or not to be, Matt? That is the question. <laughs> the U.S. and its negotiating partners finally reached a deal with Iran, curbing the nation's nuclear program in exchange for sanctions relief. The agreement calls for Iran to curb uranium enrichment for the next 10 years. President Obama spoke of the accord early this morning. Today, because America negotiated from a position of strength and principle, we have stopped the spread of nuclear weapons in this region. Because of this deal... The international community will be able to verify that the Islamic Republic of Iran will not develop a nuclear weapon. Obama said Iran, if they violate the agreement, sanctions on the country will be reinstated immediately. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said the deal is, quote, bad mistake of historic proportions. Congress has 60 days to review and vote on the agreement. One of the issues could be Iran's leverage over inspections. However, President Obama said he'll veto any legislation that would stop the agreement from moving forward. Wisconsin Republican Governor Scott Walker formally became the GOP's 15th presidential candidate last night. We need new, fresh leadership. Leadership with big, bold ideas from outside of Washington. The kind of leadership that knows how to get things done like we've done here in Wisconsin. Walker is a two-term governor who rose to national fame by taking on the unions in one of the most blue-collar states. He said he's for reform, growth, and safety, and for transferring power from Washington into the hands of tax-paying Americans. Speaking of taxes, the government took in a record amount over the last seven months. A record of just over $2,446 billion in taxes was collected. That equals nearly $16,500 per U.S. worker. Despite that revenue, the government ran up a deficit of 
over $313 billion during that same period of time. The largest amount from the record-setting nine months came from individual income taxes. 30 seconds to hit one to win. Bye-bye. There it is, the hometown hero. That hometown hero was Todd Frazier at last night's home run derby. The Cincinnati Red Slugger won the derby on his home with 39 home runs. He's the first Reds player to win the derby since Dave Parker back in 1985. Major League Baseball's All-Star Game is scheduled for tonight. And Matt, a member of a Scottish band, Mm -hmm. Rewind, collapsed at a London airport recently. And here's what happened. Jane McElvar was traveling from London to Scotland, and the airline, they only permit one carry-on bag per flyer. But this singer had already packed a small suitcase and a backpack and was told that one of the bags had to go. Now, since the rest of the band, they were already ahead of him, and he couldn't kind of, hey, take this, take that for me. He put on six T-shirts, four sweaters, (laughs) three pairs of jeans, two pairs of track pants, and two hats. So I guess he overheated and collapsed because he didn't want to pay an extra baggage fee. You know what? It's worth the 25 bucks or whatever the number is. Can you imagine uh, three (laughs) pairs of jeans and two pairs of track pants? I can't. How do you get that on? I don't know. How do you get it off? How do you get one pair of jeans after – put another pair on after you put one on? Well, now they have all those tight jeans. Exactly. So how do you get the second pair on? Yeah, that's hard. Yeah. Ugh. So that's why, you know, little uh, got a little hot under the collar and collapsed. Just a little <laughs> too much wear. You know, isn't that funny? You see now people rifling through their luggage trying to oh. change the weight of yes. their luggage. And, yes. You know, just pay the 25 bucks. Yeah. Is it 25? I don't know. Uh, Maybe it's 50. 25 or 50. I can't remember. A lot of them you get the one bag, but anything over that is right. an extra fee. That drives me crazy. They get you everywhere. I know. Don't you hate it like when you get you get on the airplane and they're like, oh, you wanted a seat? And you've got to like, oh, no, the seat actually costs, if you want to sit on the ground and hang on to those little hooks, you can sit there or you can buy a seat for $1,000. Yeah. No, my, my, my fear is always going through and they're going to confiscate my little hand sanitizer or something because that, it's three and a half ounces instead of three. I know. I don't know. See, I've learned all the tricks. Good. I've given up so many things there. From my Bowie knife to my 12-gauge. <laughs> yeah, you don't take those things, Matt. You leave those home. I know. I yeah. always forget. Dang. And they're so – they've got a little attitude sometimes. Yeah, like that, that uh, you, you really think you're getting, you yeah. know, come on. You, yeah. You want to get that water in? Did you not see the 15 <laughs> I know. signs? Exactly. What am I going to uh, do with this water, really? How many bottles of water, though, have, have I lost? That's bad. Well, I remember when the Olympics were here in, in, in Salt Lake, yeah. and I take my boys down there, and it's literally, there are the security guards with AK-47s over their shoulders, and my sons are freaking out, like, what this is going is on? This crazy. was right after 9-11, Welcome right? to the so, Olympics. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so uh, I had a little, literally, I don't even know how many ounces, this little hairspray bottle in my yeah. purse, and they confiscated it. And we had to wait so long to get through that, I mean, by the time they took that, I was like, whatever. Just take really, it. Really? What take am I going to do with this little can of hairspray? I don't know if they thought I was going to spray it in somebody's well, face, but with a lighter. Gone. You could I do a lot of but damage. I didn't have a lighter, so maybe they thought my, you know, my accomplice was over there with the <laughs> lighter, right. and we were going to meet up somewhere. I don't know. It's, Crazy rules. Yeah. Now we've we've probably you know, but it's interesting because now the air the the um, the airlines are taking advantage. Now they're like, okay, we're just going to start making you. You want food? You mm-hmm. well, pay you can for pay that. for food, right? You want entertainment? You pay for that. You want you air? Everything. You want headphones? You want headphones? Yep. You want to listen to the movie you just paid for? <laughs> That's Do you want us to land? <laughs> There's going to be a day that they're going to be like, okay, did everyone pay for landing? <laughs> if you didn't pay for a landing, then uh, you're going to need to exit right now. Well, good stuff, Kathy. Uh, you know, it's an interesting 
it's an interesting thing, isn't it? Life is just so crazy. Think back to maybe high school, the last time that you read any Shakespeare. Right? When was the last time you were into Shakespeare? Well, there's a really cool festival that goes on in Utah called the Shakespearean Festival. And uh, we wanted to to bring on some experts that help run that and educate people about Shakespeare. I was never into Shakespeare. But uh, I love talking to people that are because they seem to have a whole different view than I do. Stick with us. We're going to come back. Michael Barr will be joining us. He's the education director for the Utah Shakespearean Festival. He's going to teach us all things uh, Shakespeare up next right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, there are so many ways that we can build mental strength. Uh, and and one of them, obviously, as we were talking about earlier, could be Shakespeare. Do you feel like you know Shakespeare very well? Let me, in fact, let me just um, read you a few of these titles. And I bet you bucks. These are just his comedies. Merchant of Venice. The Merry Wives of Windsor, A Midsummer Night's Dream, Much Ado About Nothing, The Taming of the Shrew. Holy cow. Do do any of these sound familiar to you? Comedy of Errors, All's Well That Ends Well. I mean, prolific. He was quite the writer. Those are just, by the way, the comedies. And for me, they bring back a lot of – I mean, we would go down to this festival called the Shakespearean Festival. We'd go once – uh, you know, every other year about, and we it's a huge festival where with a theater in the round and we would actually watch these plays put on um, by university students. And I used to think, wow, I mean, these people talk funny. <laughs> they talk funny. Think of some other uh, great um, tragedies, including Hamlet, Othello, King Lear, Macbeth, Romeo, Juliet. Hello. Powerful stuff. And so Shakespeare's always been a source for learning. We, um, we are working with uh, Michael Barr, trying to get him on the line to talk to us about the Shakespearean Festival. But while we're, while we're doing that, I wanted to talk about an Inc. magazine article that I found um, about 18 powerful ways to build your mental strength by Lolly Daskal. And to, again, you know, Shakespeare I love. I do. I, I loved it. But now in my professional life, I don't necessarily build my mental strength anymore by going to watch Shakespeare. Now I've found a few other tricks, and I wanted to share some of them with you. One of the greatest ways uh, – I'm just going to run through a bunch of these ideas to build your mental strength. Do you feel that you're mentally tough? Do you have the ability to, to talk positively to yourself do you have any habits that lead you to be more negative, less healthy? And do you feel like you can pretty easily get your mind back in the game and kind of recheck yourself? Because if you do, you might be mentally tough. Now, in today's day and age, our lives might be a lot more mentally difficult than, they, than it is in any way, shape, or form physically difficult. A lot of us just sit in chairs all day trying to stay focused and giving our attention to our job. Luckily, I have 
an Apple Watch that tells me to stand up every hour. <laughs> what would I do without it? It makes me stronger. Let me give you some other kind of tools to help you strengthen your mental abilities, your mental toughness. Here's one example. Perspective. One of the greatest ways I've found um, to actually improve your own mental strength, your ability to, to stay centered and to not be kind of tipped upside down in life is to have a perspective of what really matters most. I've even just seen it recently because life is, is hard and then you hear some tragedy or you hear one story shook me up last week that it just shook me to the core. That father that got uh, that wanted to commit suicide, climbed up on a bridge with his child, his baby jumped off the bridge. The baby died. And the man obviously has mental health issues, right? So how do you hear something like that and not just be traumatized? Well, one of the ways might just be your perspective and start to figure out in life what matters most to you. To me, one of the fastest things that kind of resets me and helps me remain strong emotionally or mentally is to kind of know that this earth life for me isn't the key. This earth life is not my ultimate goal in life. This earth life isn't my end-all, be-all. I have a connection to the fact that I believe I lived before I came here and I believe I'll live after. And having that perspective makes it so I can deal with a lot easier with what's going on in this second act of my life, knowing that there's going to be a third act. So perspective can help us a lot. Another tool that helps to help you be more mentally stable is being ready for change. Some of us are so surprised by the fact that life keeps changing around us, and we don't even pay attention to try to be ready for it. But change, being ready for your change means that you're, you can be flexible. It means you're prepared. It means you've thought through some of this. Do you feel like you are anticipating the fact that there's going to be a need for you to be a little more flexible in the future? That might be by having some financial savings. That might be by just having thought through some changes that we need to make. I've noticed for me personally, a lot of the changes that I need to make I have to actually anticipate making. Even though I don't need to make a change right now, I need to be thinking ahead, far enough ahead, that I can kind of jump ahead and and make the change before I even need it. That's one of the problems. If you wait too long before you're preparing for the next stage, you're already going to be in the stage before you notice it, right? A really cool uh, another tool that you see people like Gandhi, you see uh, Mother Teresa, Christ, Buddha, they all taught this power to kind of detach from things. If you want to be more mentally tough, make your life less about the things of the world and more just about your being, what you're being. Your ability to detach from things makes it so that when you lose things in your life, you you don't have to suffer such a setback. You can come on strong. You can be you can be committed to the fact that you know the principles of life not necessarily that you're just focused on the things of life. The more detached you are from things, not people, we want to be connected to people and detached from things. Isn't it amazing that like when Gandhi died, he only died with a few possessions left? How many things do you think Mother Teresa owned? Do you think she had like three storage units that they had to go sort through? Oh, man, this Mother Teresa, she sure 
hoard at a lot of stuff. She didn't attach to things. But so many of us, we are so constantly attached to the things of the world that we just remain stressed. And then think of what that does to you mentally. It beats the crud out of you. Because mentally, your mind has to keep control over all of these things. How are you going to keep paying for all of these things? How are you going to get the next thing? It's so stressful. Eckhart Tolle uh, has a has a he's a great kind of spiritual thinker, and he tells a story about a forty something year old school um, teacher who was dying of cancer that he was visiting, and as he was visiting this woman. She sat him down one day and she said, look, I got to talk to you about something and I need some advice. And he's just like, great. What's the problem? She says, I think the people that are taking care of me, she had some aides that would care for her. She says, I think the aides took a very special ring of mine and I don't know what to do. And he asked her to describe the ring. And this ring was a special kind of heirloom ring that grandmother had given her. And uh, she was kind of the favorite grandchild. She's the only one that got the ring. This ring meant so much to her. And it also meant that grandma, you know, loved her. She was a single woman. So her relationship with her grandma became really important. And this ring was critical. And Eckhart, I guess, was talking to the woman and was like, so they, this, somebody took the ring? And she says, yeah. And I don't know, I, like, I feel like I need to call the cops. And I want to call the cops to have them come arrest her because, you know, I need my ring back. And this woman was dying of cancer. And Eckhart looks at her and he says, well you know you've got cancer, right? And she's like, yeah. And he says, you know when you die, you're going to leave the ring, right? And she's like, yeah. And then he said, well, so when do you think you're going to be ready to let it go? And she looked at him like, huh? And he he asked her, So when you lose your ring, if you lost your ring and somebody took it from you, what part of you is actually gone? And she said, well, no part of me is gone. And he said, right. So it's not about the ring. And when it comes down to all of us, are you ready to let the stuff of your life go? Because if you can't let the stuff of your life go, the the car, the house, the the goods, everything you kind of build your identity around – it's going to make you more mentally weak because you got to have the goods, right? And without the goods, you aren't going to have anything. So mental toughness, do you have it? Because if you don't have it, then you might want to eliminate some of the goods. The goods may be costing you. We're going to take a break, and uh, when we come back, we're going to get into the discussion of Shakespeare. I would suggest you go look up that Inc. Magazine article, 18 Powerful Ways to Build Your Mental Strength. You can go look down the rest of the list. We've only covered a couple of them. We'll come back. We're talking all things Shakespeare up next right here on The Matt Townsend Show. To the Matt Townsend Show. You know, are you familiar with some of these phrases? All that glitters is not gold. A laughing stock. Too much of a good thing. 
or being in a pickle? Would it surprise you to learn that we owe these phrases along with the words dwindle, watchdog, and frugal to William Shakespeare? Does Shakespearean language still give you a headache? Our guest today, Michael Barr, is the Education Director for the Utah Shakespearean Festival. He joins us now live to talk more about that. Mr. Barr, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Good morning. Yes, uh, in fact, that's a great list of words. Uh, Upstairs, uh, uh, eyeball, all those uh, great (laughs) words uh, he put together for the first time uh, and and knew a dramatic phrase and how to how to say it. We don't he he impacted our lives at a level that I think most of us don't even realize. Talk, Talk to us about that, because, you know, a lot of us experienced Shakespeare maybe when we were in high school and. We didn't probably have a, a teacher as skilled as you are, Michael, because I mean you're you're an award winning, outstanding teacher of the year multiple times. But you make it fun. Help us understand why Shakespeare should matter to us. Well, Shakespeare matters. Because, well, and and he's mattered to a lot of cultures. Uh, been with us for a long time. When you when you think how long ago, fifteen sixty four is when he was uh, when you know born and you know died sixteen sixteen oh eight. But since then, uh, his works have lived with us. And um, there's something about his understanding of the universal man. And what I like to say is he knows us better uh, than we know ourselves. Yeah. Uh, uh, that's why his stories, uh, his his images, um, Freud and other scholars in our day have taken that. He's actually called the man of the millennia. Uh, and if you think of other... Um, playwrights or other poets or other that no one has the same resonance and it's and it's because of his understanding of the universal man his his plays teach us about ourselves and about uh, humanity and i also like to say you know sometimes they'll say oh all the answers are in shakespeare i don't think all the answers are in shakespeare i think he asks all the right questions mm. Um, and if you took, you know, any any play, uh, it could be Romeo and Juliet, you know, an understanding of, uh, you know, this couple that uh, I use Romeo and Juliet because most people have access to that. They, they know that through yeah. school. Um, but, uh, you know, basically an individual from the other side of the tracks that your parents, you know, don't approve of and you're attracted to her and, you know, should should you go with her, should you not go with her and uh, gang violence and uh, two hateful groups coming to one. All those issues all boiled up into into this great plot. Um, Macbeth and his desire for power, uh, Brutus and Julius Caesar mm-hmm. and his uh, principled um, – wanting to do the noble thing, but that might not be the right thing. Again, I, I, I think they're morality tales uh, and talk about we as people. Um, and and I think the best way to actually learn and study them is, is not through uh, reading them out of a book, but literally seeing them on stage or acting. They were meant, never meant to be read. They were huh. meant to be seen, and they were meant to be performed. And those teachers that are most effective, and I think if you think back to that really dynamic teacher that you may have had, the one who was really passionate about it, they did it by making you an actual participant in Shakespeare's plays. And that's, that's what I'm most passionate about. The best way to learn is so you're actually putting his text in your mouth, uh, getting up and actually doing uh, the performance. 
Is it so for the rest of us? Um, I guess we just have to keep accessing the plays and keep finding ways to go see the plays. Is there is there a way? How how does the average Joe do that? I mean, I know Michael, you you work with uh, at the Utah Shakespearean Festival, which is it's it's an it's phenomenal. It's an amazing facility where they the plays go on every year, and there's a theater in the round and. Um, I went there once as a young boy on my, my birthday's in May and I had a bunch of beautiful damsels or whatever we call them that threw me to a maypole and did the maypole dance around me. And I thought I was in heaven. (laughs) And, um, so, and then I'd go watch these plays with my, my family and I, I, I loved them as a play. How do, how does the average Joe get to the plays? That's well, and I think that's. Uh, I mean, I could talk to you. First of all, everybody needs to get in their car and come down and they do. experience uh, the Utah Shakespeare Festival. That's that's the first. That goes without saying, uh, because uh, there's something magic about the space that we perform in, and uh, the directors and actors that uh, we have here. They know how to do Shakespeare, and I think a lot of times we are harmed by. Uh, we've been scarred. Uh, I call it art. We're art scared because we've been art scarred. <laughs> we, we've seen bad productions yeah. of Shakespeare. We haven't seen productions of Shakespeare that really access us. And the best way they access is is coming out. I mean, literally, the characters talk to the audience. They engage yeah. you in the audience. It's it's called breaking the fourth wall. It's called direct address. Uh, those groundlings back in Shakespeare's day that would pay a penny to get into that theater and would stand in the theater. Uh, they would be like a modern rodeo crowd or NASCAR crowd that would... Shakespeare wrote for them and he wrote for the upper um, <laughs> crust too. He wrote for both of those audiences and his plays contain things that bind those two audiences together. So the best way to do it is to actually engage and see this. And we at the festival, we know that. And so we have orientations before all of the shows that take away some of your Shakespeare. uh, (laughs) Shakespeare. That's great. So that uh, basically to get you through those first 10 or 15 minutes and after those first 10 or 15 minutes of, oh, what's going on here, uh, people are are surprised. I'm surprised that people are are surprised. Uh They're surprised that, oh, I get this. Oh, I understand this. Oh, my gosh, this is really, really wonderful. This is – and I think a lot of times people – uh, approach Shakespeare as oh I need I need to know this because it's it's good for me or yeah. I need to do this because it's like medicine yeah this is medicine all right let's go down and take our medicine <laughs> and rather than that um, I compare it to going to a great restaurant. The more you go to a restaurant, the more you'll begin to recognize, ah, that's what basil tastes like, or, oh, you know, here's, here's what uh, uh, cumin tastes like, or here's this. And you begin to uh, immerse yourself more and more in things, and suddenly you'll start to see that those issues that Shakespeare's talking about are in everything. That's why every good – I used to, when I taught high school, is uh, I would say to my students, they said, right now you don't understand everything that's being talked about in all of these modern films of the day or in the Simpsons or anything like that. But a an education in the humanities opens up all of life to you, opens up all of the humanities to you. So I would recommend going to the orientations that we have ahead of time. We have numerous resources online, study guides, etc. But if you can't do all of that, 
just walk into a play and watch a play. And I guarantee after the first five, 10 minutes, it'll wash over you. And I can't tell you the number of people that have become converts uh, to Shakespeare that same way. Mm. And it's, uh, it, you have to, it's almost like you have to get over the first 10 minutes. You keep, like you have to get into the moment, I guess. Correct. Correct. But you, you, uh, that's the way it is with, with any I guess show. it's true. Any concert, anything. Yeah, any, uh, you know, whether you're going to a concert or whether uh, – you know, imagine if you'd never been to a football game before. And then you <laughs> sit and watch and go, oh, I get Oh, what that's what – okay. <laughs> yeah, that's what this is about. So uh, it, it's that uh, – and I also think um, I, I like to start them young. Um, uh, uh, to a fourth grader or to a third grader, there's no difference between Shakespeare and Dr. Seuss. Uh, fantastic characters, nonsense language, uh, really engaging, fun in the mouth, uh, and wonderful morals at the end of it. You know, all of that happens, um, but they don't know that they're not supposed to understand it in the fourth grade because yeah. the whole world is coming at that way. It's not until we're brainwashed when we get into those teen areas that, oh, I can't understand this. I can't can't understand this um, because if you introduce, um, I'll tell a quick story. Yeah. Um, uh, it, I work with a lot of teachers, and uh, if you take Shakespeare and you introduce it to a fourth grader or a fifth grader, and you get them up to perform it, you do a performance for the parents. The parents are just so amazed. Oh, my kid is doing Shakespeare. This is amazing. It's amazing. I've talked to teachers, and they say, you know, it, it's kind of like a trick. Uh, <laughs> people think you're an amazing teacher because you get them to do Shakespeare, but uh, Kids are like sponges with this. Uh, I want you to think about the play Macbeth. It opens with a bunch of witches greeting this man saying, you're going to be king, you're going to be king. He goes, oh my gosh, I'm going to be king. He tells his wife. His wife says, oh, well, we better kill Duncan. Okay, let's kill Duncan. Meanwhile, the audience is saying, no, 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 don't do it. Witches come back again. It it moves. That play moves. You introduce that to a fourth or fifth grader, uh, they get it. They have no problem with it. so we're really the problem. When I hear about people who, um, there are tragedies and there are comedies, and then there are what we call, what the scholars call, problem plays. And I don't think Shakespeare had the problem. I think <laughs> we're the ones with the problem. We are, um, aren't we? especially because we keep perpetuating like it's hard. Yes. But yes. then when you're in it, it's not. No, no. Yeah, and so uh, it's the greeting of it. Uh, Taming of the Shrew, we happen to be doing this year uh, an amazing play that uh, is a love story between two misfits. Don't fit into society. We love it because they're finally there. Through the 60s and 70s, uh, there were uh, people who uh, didn't like the uh, misogynist or the, uh, oh, I don't know, should you really be taming a wife? Should you really be doing that? (laughs) And calling her a shrew, right? Yes, and calling her a shrew and uh, this whole taming sequence. Um, We're selling out performances of this. Oh, yeah. Uh, And and, uh, men and women, primarily women, are just coming to this, dragging their husbands to it because (laughs) they just really, really, really love this production. And there's something innate in the Shakespeare play because I really think he had a tap on on who we are, yeah. on who we are as human beings. And so it's just that language that we have to get over. And once we drink it, once we've tasted what that luscious taste steak tastes like, we go, oh, oh, I get this. Oh, my gosh. Mm. And um, I have multiple stories because of my uh, – 
the relationship I have with patrons here who share, you know, share these stories with me. But from my own story, I remember standing at the back of a theater uh, listening to a King and Henry VI talk about how, oh, I wish I was a shepherd boy so I wouldn't have to worry about all these affairs of state. And as the state is falling down around him. Huh. They're at war and they're trying to kill him and all that type of stuff. And I, I happened to be going through some really tough stuff at work at that time. This was I was employed in another place. And um, just the politics of it. And uh, Shakespeare says, you know, why when we sit on a purple pillow and why when we have these nice, you know, wouldn't it be nicer to just have simple curds out of a band <laughs> And to count my sheep, and and I found myself, it resonated. I know it just resonated, and and I think we are talking about things of consequence. That's the difference. Is that Shakespeare's plays are consequential? These are high stakes. It is life and death. Mm. And the minute you throw life and death, and what else can you say out there in the literature? has the, that type of no. that consequence. Well, and, and so, so many different options, right? And so many different lessons. Yes, yes, yes. So, I mean, uh, you've got a comic scene, and all of a sudden you have a tragic scene, and you have a thing, but every single character is playing high stakes. And uh, high stakes in the theater are, you know, life or death, life or death stakes. And when you're faced with those life or death stakes, uh, you as an audience member start questioning your own mortality and and thinking about that and i uh i think that's why he's lasted um the yeah. years that he has 450 years um be, because of that so um, it's just a great way to process to process um life and and i i want to take a break michael come back and have you continue to, to teach us what are some other ways that we could maybe get our children a little bit more involved in it um, just anytime you find an expert in something, I love to pick his brain. Michael Barr is our expert today on Shakespeare. He's the education director for the Utah Shakespearean Festival. He joins us uh, after the break. We'll continue this discussion. Good stuff, folks. Shakespeare, 450 plus years. Are you kidding me? It's a lot to learn, a lot to learn. Don't just jump to thinking you can't handle it. We'll take a break. More after the break. friends to the Matt Townsend show. Uh, joining us on the phone is Michael Barr. He's the education director for the Utah Shakespearean Festival, which you can find out information about the festival if you go to www.bard.org. Bard.org. Really, go check out this site. And if you can ever swing to southern Utah, it is the place to go. Just great, you know, parks, Natural parks, just beautiful places to visit. But then you stop by Cedar City, and uh, oh, I'm telling you, it's cool, it's beautiful at night, and you sit and, and experience uh, Shakespeare. And again, I'm not a guy that is known for loving Shakespeare, but the memories I have about going to watch these plays as a kid, in fact, I was just thinking, I've got to get my kids down there again this year, because it's, it really, it's, it, the, as Michael's been teaching us, Shakespeare was more of he's kind of just more of a therapist. He understood the human and uh, and the human plight. So, Michael Barr, welcome back to the show. 
Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah. Uh, first of all, uh, yeah, come down. This is, uh, and this is going to break some hearts. I'm not sure if you've heard, this is the last year of that outdoor Shakespeare theater. <sighs> so, uh, but the good news is we're moving across the street to this new center for the performing arts so that Shakespeare can last another 50 years. We've been doing it here since resource and then I like too like you were saying that you sit everybody down and you do a little kind of tutorial on what you're about yep. to watch there's a and he did that Fred started that in 1961 uh, where it's just it's called an orientation and when our peers find out uh, in other computer companies what you do what you do a pre-show talk uh, we also do a post-show talk that we have about 120 to 200 people every morning who go out to a grove of trees and discuss the play after huh. and that um, I want to I, I want to cover that point too because um, it's really like going to church uh, yeah. If you wait until 16, 17, I'll wait till my kids are 21 to uh, so that they can you know find out what going to church is like. No, you, you take those, those kids when they're younger. We have a uh, six-year-old and up policy. In other words, from you bring kids, and there are six-year-olds sitting in that theater. We have child care. How many other theater companies really? in the nation to have yeah. child care uh, for those that are younger? But it starts that young. Uh, you start taking kids to the theater. You start – that's how they learn how to be. Yeah. In, in a theatrical setting. And if you're doing this in your home, I know uh, you have a, list, a lot of listeners who do a lot of great home things. Yeah. Um, it's really easy to get uh, students. I'm teaching a class right now, theater methods for teachers. And what do you do with a kindergarten, a, a five-year-old, a four-year-old? So uh, you do a method which is called story theater. You know, once upon a time, there was a, and then you have a kid get up and he acts that part mm. out. And you feed ideas into them. And if you if you want to see a kid get creative, That's I'll, I'll use the nursery rhyme as an example. Once upon a time, there were three little pigs. Charlie, you played this little pig, and Susan, you played this yeah. little pig, and you build and you coach it. Sticks. Yeah, and you just you just coach them through. Now, I know some people are really afraid of the Shakespeare thing, they, uh, but we have synopsises online. We have plot things sometimes. Once upon a time, there was a girl named Hermia, and Hermia was in love with this boy named Lysander. You just tell those stories, and there were some uh, very famous Charles and Mary Lamb in the 1800s wrote, uh, it was called Tales by Shakespeare, and they actually took Shakespeare's tales and put them in what would have been 1800 language mm. back then. But there's so many resources online for that type of thing. The biggest thing I'm saying is just get the kids on their feet and start putting 
Shakespeare's words and Shakespeare's yeah. stories in their minds and minds. I love that, and I didn't realize that that really this wasn't this wasn't written to be read. It was written to be acted out, and so even yeah. doing that as a family activity. We've only got about twenty more seconds, though. But give us one more thing that we that we just need to know, Michael, about Shakespeare that would that that keeps the spirit of him alive. Well, I love what you just said, and I'll do it as quick as I can. Yeah. Shakespeare's plays, the thirty-eight plus plays that we have that are his, the majority of them we didn't have until eight years after his death. Two mm. of his actors put that together in what was called the folio. They knew they, these were actors in his company. And I think when we think of them as these were plays meant to be seen, that's the answer and that's the key uh, to Shakespeare. Mm. And so you see it and you act it out yourself and that's how you find the answer and what he's trying to teach you, what he's yeah. trying to tell you. Michael Barr, we appreciate you, my friend. Keep up the great work there. Everybody, go check out the Utah Shakespearean Festival. Go to uh, org and uh, get down there. Get that education that Michael's been teaching us. We'll take a break. We'll be right back, folks. More right here coming up on The Matt Townsend Show. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to the program. I'm sure you've heard in the news, the headlines that we've signed. uh, We haven't signed, but they've basically now passed the deal. They've passed the great negotiation, the great uh, treaty with Iran. And apparently... Everything is perfect now. <laughs> Just rest assured, it's all good. Now, here's the great news: potentially, with the new uh, with the new deal with Iran, if everything you know, the, remember this deal, it's done, but it's still going to go to Congress, and then Congress is going to fight about it, and then the president's probably going to veto it, and then bada boom, bada bing, we got a treaty. Um, but here's the cool thing, I guess. There's a potential that your gas prices could drop to $2 in a few months because of this deal. Iran's like the fourth largest uh, producer of, of oil and gas. And guess what? They've got a ton of it just stashed away waiting for this very day. So, you know, I'm not going to start rumors, but here's one to start. It might be that we get $2 of gas later this year, which means, you know, you'll be able to buy more. You'd be able to buy bigger SUVs, maybe a Hummer here, a Hummer there. The The decade of trying to conserve, gone. Because now $2 of gas. Um, anyway, that's kind of cool. About Labor Day. Wouldn't that be great? Anyway, just trying to bring you the good news. Uh, also good news, Pluto. We're getting pictures back right now. Uh, we're noticing they have really nice resorts. They have uh, some incredible uh, oceanfront property. Great deals in Pluto. To uh, if you're buying a, if you're looking for a rental home or a, you know, vacation home. And it only takes you nine and a half years to get there. It only takes you nine and a half years. Pack and but car. you know what? With the ga- price of gas, it's getting a lot cheaper to get there. <laughs> and going 31,000 miles an hour, the kids will be thrilled. I mean, this is great. Take your kids 
take your kid, take your baby, and you can celebrate their 10th birthday. It's just 31,000 miles an hour for nine and a half years. $750 billion, or what, million dollars mm-hmm. to get there. Yeah, well, that's back in the day. Now, that was before yeah, now Iran. It's probably, uh... Now it'll be half that easily. Anyway, uh, that's just one headline. I'm, I like to give my own headlines, but let's go to the let's go to the person that really knows the headlines. Kathy Aiken, teach us what you know. Thank you, Matt. After years of disputes and headlines, Iran and the world powers agreed to historic nuclear pact overnight. The deal calls for Tehran to curb its uranium enrichment for the next ten years in exchange for easing economic sanctions. The accord will also impose new provisions for inspections for Iranian facilities. Congress will have 60 days to review and vote on the agreement. Here's what President Obama said about that this morning. I am confident that this deal will meet the national security interests of the United States and our allies. So I will veto any legislation that prevents the successful implementation of this deal. Hard-nosed diplomacy, leadership that has united the world's major powers, offers a more effective way to verify that Iran is not pursuing a nuclear weapon. Obama said if Iran violates the agreement, sanctions on the country will be reinstated immediately. He also said the deal is not built on trust, but rather on verification. Iran's foreign minister called the agreement a win-win solution and historic, while Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said the deal is a bad mistake of historic proportions. Last night, Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker formally announced his candidacy. The 47-year-old two-term Republican governor highlighted the fact he lowered income and corporate taxes, legalized carrying a concealed weapon, made abortions more difficult to obtain, and required voter ID. Walker is also known for his battles with labor unions. We are so honored to have you join with us here today as we officially announce that we are running to serve as your president of the United States of America. Walker's announcement came in the place where he celebrated a successful recall election three years ago, the first governor in U.S. history to defeat a recall election. NASA officials are cheering this morning after its New Horizons spacecraft passed by Pluto. The flight took nine and a half years and nearly $750 billion. If all goes according to plan, the spacecraft is expected to send back status reports later tonight. Because Pluto is almost three billion miles away, it will take four and a half hours of travel time at the speed of light for the signal to reach Earth. They're calling it miraculous. A 16-year-old girl was found alive yesterday after the small plane she was in crashed in northern Washington. Autumn Veach was flying from Montana to Washington with her step-grandparents when their plane disappeared on Sunday. Autumn was found by hikers after walking through the wilderness. The teen was taken to a hospital for dehydration. Officials say she wasn't able to pinpoint a crash location and believe her grandparents most likely did not survive. The son of a Boston police captain has been charged with a plot to set off pressure cooker bombs at college cafeterias. 23-year-old Alexander Chicola was arrested on the 4th of July after being under close surveillance by undercover informants. Chicola's father was the one who alerted officials who say his son was obsessed with ice and was mentally ill. The Pentagon is looking into the possibility of lifting a ban on transgenders serving in the military. Military and civilian officials have six months to determine new rules so they can serve without adverse impact on military effectiveness and readiness. The ban, which uh, Carter said is outdated, will stay in place until the study is complete. And Matt, did you know the length of your finger may indicate 
your mental health status. Oh, boy, great. Turkish science, so put out your right hand. <laughs> it's not very Turkish long. Turkish scientists found that the ratio between the index and ring fingers may predict the risk for schizophrenia. Hmm. Researchers measured the fingers of 103 men with the disorder, and the results showed when compared to healthy men, they were more likely to have a longer index finger and shorter ring finger on their right hand. Oh, boy. You in trouble? What if they're the same size? You're good. That's good. <laughs> I think that's good. Perfect. Yet on the left hand, the digit ratio was lower than those without Ooh. the disorder. However, when asked how much weight you should place on this potential as a potential risk factor, not too much. Okay. So why do the study? Yeah, now, why, why do the study? Yeah. Let's put in millions of dollars to look at your right hand to see if your ring finger Honestly, is longer than your index finger. Those weren't even the fingers I worry about when I think about mental health. <laughs> You know, that's weird. I'm looking at mine. My right ring finger is much longer than my right index finger, but on the left, they're kind of the same. That's weird. Well, what if you've lost a finger? Ben doesn't have a finger up there. Yours about the same? What about your left hand, Matt? They're the same. They're the same? As your right? My hand's very symmetrical. Very good. I think that's how God wanted it. (laughs) He wanted you very I should have been a pro ball player. Hey, are you going to watch the All-Star game? I'm not. Why? No, I've got a wedding reception tonight and something else. I can't remember. Oh, actually, a, a viewing, a celebration of life of a dear friend. Oh. So, yeah. J- uh, Frazier, what was his name that won the— He won the Cincinnati was... Reds. He won it uh, last night, the Home Run Derby. How cool is yeah, that? the first Reds to win it since 1985. Those yeah. guys, too. It used to be that you had to be all—the winners were all these roided-up yeah. big guys. Yeah, he's not very—he's no, not they a were just guy. tiny guys. And I do like the fact that they put a clock to it. You yeah. only had a certain amount yeah. of time, and move I like that. Move yeah, along. get it going. It's not And then we watched the, the celebrity uh, softball game. Mm-hmm. We watched that, too. That was pretty boring. <laughs> Those usually are very boring. Those people think so much of themselves, and yeah. they can't play. So, yeah. Yeah, why put them out there? It's an interesting Who was time. The star? Um Macklemore was there. He was pretty big. He was big. Uh Ozzie Smith was there. He was the biggest star I thought because oh, yeah. he was my hero growing up. Oh yeah, up. the backflipper. Anybody that could do a backflip. Yeah. You know. That shortstop. That's bad. why I also like Mary Lou Retton. Yeah, she was amazing. <laughs> was she on the Did she play softball? No, oh. No, she didn't. You just liked that she did the, backflips. The one of the baseball the one of the softball pitchers, the Olympic Women's softball pitcher. I can't remember her name. She was there. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it, it's a fun time. I also like, though, that the All-Star game matters in a way, doesn't it? Does yes, it, the in winner baseball? gets home field advantage it's a big uh, for deal. the World Series. That is a big deal. That is a very big deal. Yeah. So, I don't know. I'd like to look up to see how that's affected uh, who wins, but it is a big deal. See, we need to— Because before that, when they didn't have something to play for, lots yeah. of players didn't oh, play. Do you remember? Yeah. yeah they, saw, they wanted And it was break, just so a big show. Right. But, now it's a show, but we're this is for real. Yeah, but there's something added at the end. <laughs> a big bonus. Yeah. That's a bonus. Good stuff. Yeah. Well done, Kathy. You did it again. Hey, uh, coming up, we're going to be talking about how to train your brain for adventure. And you won't believe it, but you can you can just simply get your brain to be more adventurous just in your own neighborhood, at home. Have you ever noticed that it's you have more exciting times traveling than you do just living in your own neighborhood, going to your own, you know, the, the the events in your backyard. Well, joining us in just a few minutes, Judith Fine will be here, and uh, she's an award-winning travel journalist, and she's going to talk a little bit more how we can train our brains to sense more adventure even just at home. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back after the break.
Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, it's old news that if you do crossword puzzles in the bathtub and Sudokus while you floss, you learn a dozen languages here and there, you do your math problems, you know, you're going to make sure your brain doesn't turn into Swiss cheese. True? Do you believe that's true or not? Who knows, but here is some news for you. If you live in your hometown the way you live when you're traveling, your brain will be happy and your heart and spirit will follow. With us on the phone today is Judith Fine. She's an award-winning travel journalist who's here to talk to us a little bit more about how to train our brains to always feel that sense of adventure no matter where we are. Judith, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Hello, Matt. Great to have you. Could I start with a question? Please. Okay. Maybe it'll give you a break from asking. That'd be great. Okay. What did you do this past weekend? Where do you live, by the way? I live in uh, Salt Lake, uh, near Salt Lake City. Okay. What did you do this weekend that was different from anything you've done before? Huh. Um. Oh, I went to a rodeo. Huh. I have never. It's a rodeo in my city that I've never been to ever. Did you meet anybody at the rodeo? Did you talk to people? I did. Yeah, I did. Okay, then you already have a leg up on everything. We but I, by the way, Ju- Judith, the rest of the month did nothing on any other weekend. That's the only weekend. So, <clears throat> what possessed you to suddenly go to a, to a rodeo? My, we got free tickets, and I'm uh-huh. a tightwad. That, that'll, that'll possess you. <laughs> that was it, and it was. But it's funny. I've heard people that do this rodeo. You know, they go every year, and it's this great tradition, and people love it. And I had never ever been in ten years. So, whom to whom did you talk? the rodeo you know what's interesting just the people around me i met i mean i some of them i was supposed to kind of know but i didn't know but then i met just a lot of people that were around us okay so that mentality that you go someplace first of all you do something you haven't done before and secondly that you talk to people um that's how you start and it could be something very small it could be an exciting rodeo but it's starting to have an attitude about your life as being an adventure. Oh, I, I loved it. And I loved your article, Train. It's on psychologytoday.com. But bored, question mark, train your brain for adventure. Because you, you walk through, I mean, I don't have to travel to do all of this. If I would travel, I'd try to go maybe meet more people and get out there. But I could do all of this in my own backyard. That's, that's the thing, that it's a mindset. You know, people who travel who do not have a trained adventure brain, they go and they see sights, which is fabulous. You know, they'll see the yeah. Taj Mahal and they'll see the Eiffel Tower, but nothing really changes inside of them. It's not, something, they're, they're, it's not deep. They're just doing it. They're traveling on the road and they're making sure that they eat at the best restaurants and they stay in the best hotels. But that's not an adventure. It's great. It's a form of travel. But there's a whole other way that you can travel every day of your life and the training starts immediately in your hometown. It's a mindset, isn't it? So, so how do I, how because my my mindset's not usually an adventure mindset. Okay, it's it's more just, you know, kind of status quo. Keep it simple. Know what you're doing. Keep doing what you know. Um, but you, but in your article, you kind of just walk through that. There's just a lot of li- little moments and little places where adventure exists if you kind of push on in a little bit. Walk okay. us through those. Hello? Oh, hello. Oh. Yeah, we got you. I don't know. An adventure with the phone. That was, yeah, okay. it sounded Here's like the question. bobbies were pulling up. <laughs> so, so, 
my question. In your hometown, what is an ethnic restaurant you haven't eaten in? Oh, I don't eat Thai food. So there's okay. a lot of Thai. We could go do that. Okay. I've never tried it. You don't, you don't like Thai food? No, I've never tried it. It okay, scares me. <laughs> yeah. So the first thing you do is you go to the Thai restaurant. But when you're there, you don't go in the usual mode. When the waiter or waitress or wait person, I hate saying yeah. wait person, when the wait person comes up to your table, you say, can you help me out here? I've never eaten Thai food before, and I need a little assistance. Yeah. And then you're talking to a wait person. And if you're lucky, that wait person comes from Thailand, because very often they have Thai people waiting right. there, or at least um, people who are Asian. And you say, oh, tell me where you come from. The next thing you know, you're in a conversation. If you're really listening, yeah. you're all of a sudden, you're with a person who's different from you. You're learning something, and you're eating food that you haven't eaten before. You are, and it could, it, so this could take, maybe it's lunch. Maybe just taking a break from work, and it's an hour. You have an hour of adventure. Mm. I mean, I really, it's, it's interesting because I have done that before on other occasions at other restaurants. And it, it's, it's a different experience than going in and just trying to figure it out and me- eat a meal. It's really having an experience. But if you look at a me- the meal itself as an experience, so every time you go to a restaurant, I can't remember. We have to eat out a lot because we're traveling a lot. I can't remember the last time I had a neutral experience in a restaurant. Huh. We've been invited to events, especially when we are on the road, when we're traveling, and we go to very exotic places, but it also could be in the town next to you. You'll start talking, and you'll say, hey, I do a radio show, and the person will say, wow, there's somebody you should meet. And instead of saying no, you say, okay. Sure. And then it's a chain of events in the course of your daily life that become an adventure. Now, it doesn't have to be something exotic. It doesn't have to be a foreign restaurant. It could simply be that there's somebody you meet on the street or you see who is radically different from you. Maybe it's a a homeless person. Maybe it's someone, it could be someone dressed in a sari from India. But it's somebody who is out of your normal sphere of contact. And you start talking to them. It's it's that simple. Yeah. And that's it. I mean, and that and it does engage you into a whole different culture, maybe a language, maybe yes. a whole experience that yes. and it's in your backyard. And it's right there. You know, it's funny when people post. You know, I did a TED talk, for example, on deep travel. Yeah. And when people post on it, I always on all of the sites where I write, I try to answer them. And yesterday there was the most touching <laughs> it was the most touching comment I've seen. I have no idea who it was from. I think it was a woman. And she wrote and she said, I was raised not to speak to strangers. And now I'm going to go out and I'm going to speak to strangers. (laughs) And it made me so happy because that's the deal. And also, I believe that when you do that, you're contributing to world peace. I mean, everybody's so horrified by what's happening in the world. Sure. The, The wars, the meaningless, senseless violence and killing. But somehow, if you engage... With another culture, especially I dwell on cultures, it opens your heart to them. You're not going to bomb people to whom your heart is open. Sure. It's, so you become like a little peacemaker. Yeah, just and, and you only have a little more experience with the culture. Even just a tiny bit softens your heart a bit. It softens your heart. And when you read, 
if you read a newspaper or a magazine online, when you see that country mentioned, you're going to have a personal connection to it. This is all, the secret of all of this is that it's about connection. An unadventurous life is a life with no connection. Mm. An adventurous life is a life where you're really connected to other humans. And and those experiences, it seems that they're kind of stored away, like in your soul, right? And then oh, what a beautiful! Oh, I'm stealing that. <laughs> yeah, no, put that in your put that on your next post. Well, that, those experiences, <laughs> yes, are stored away in your soul, and you call on them. So let me tell you. Oh, you want to hear something that Please. happened here in my hometown? Yeah. Okay. Now, where do you live? Well, I live in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Okay. Yeah. Beautiful. Okay. So there was an art show here this past weekend. And I went, and they had galleries from around the world, contemporary art. And you'd say, that's not really adventure. You go and look at art. But I walked in, and there was somebody I knew. And she was with a gentleman, and she said, I want to introduce you to this man. He's one of the artists from South Africa. And I said, hi, how are you doing? And I said to him, what is your tribal affiliation? Huh. And he said, I am Zulu. And I said, can I tell you a really weird experience my husband and I had in South Africa? And he said, sure, go ahead. And I said, my husband, we, we flew in a pr- plane that was not properly pressurized, I think, and he had bad allergies. Oh. It went into his ear. Yeah. And he was almost, his eardrum was almost going to burst. And we went to every doctor you can imagine, and he was taking antibiotics and steroids. Absolutely nothing was helping him. So I said to him, almost as a joke, let's go to his to a Zulu healer, to a Zulu Sangoma, they're called. Uh-huh. And we went. And she did this ceremony. He never told her what was wrong. But she looked at him, and she said, it, it wasn't in English, it was translated, but she said, you think the problem is your ear, but the problem is your ancestors. You don't know how to connect to your ancestors. And she tells my husband a ceremony to do with lighting candles, and he does it. And he invites in his ancestors, and his ear got better when he went home. Holy cow. So, so I t- it was quite an experience. Yeah. And I told this experience to the strange, stranger, a guy from South Africa. And he said to me, can I tell you a secret? And I said, well, of course you can. And he said, one of the artists here is a Zulu Sangoma from South Africa. Holy cow. So I said, of course, of course, I want to meet her. So he takes me to play where I would never have gone. No, I would never have no. Talked. That's the deal. And she looks at me, and she says to me, there's a woman standing next to you. I think it's your mother's mother. And I said, oh, wow, how could you know that? Uh, My last book was about the importance of the ancestors, and it was about my mother's mother. Oh, my heavens. So I'm just telling you how going to an art show, I mean, that was a longer story than I No, but... Look at the, all the connections, because like you even just asked him, what's your tribal affiliation? If you haven't ever dealt with anybody in Africa, you wouldn't know to ask that. But So one experience leads to the next, which it almost just seems like, you know, it just it gets more rich and more rich. More rich. And you know something? People are very afraid to ask questions. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Well, I, I, maybe we don't want to offend, or we don't want to seem ignorant. Oh, that's an ind- on both sides. <laughs> you don't want to offend, you don't want to, Okay, first of all, if you come from another culture from a person, um, you will offend. Yeah. There's something you're going to do in the course of being with someone from another culture or traveling to another culture. But you know what? It's forgiven. You haven't murdered anybody. Right, 
You just asked Someone a question. Said, you know, Bill said you. You know, in our culture, it's not polite to to ask that. We went to a. Um, we were in Lapland, in the north of Finland, with Sami reindeer herders. It was such a beautiful, incredible lifestyle. And I said to one of the herders, "How many reindeer do you have?" They were white reindeer, pristine white reindeer. And I said, "How many do you have?" And he was offended. He <laughs> said, "Do I ask you how much money you have in the bank?" Oh, interesting. Because that's his... Yeah, that was his money, yeah. But he wasn't angry. I said, oh, I'm so sorry, I didn't know. And he said, that's okay, I know you didn't know. That's the end of it. Interesting. But lesson learned. And a point made that you can now make and share. Yeah. I mean, it does make life richer. Um, Let's take a break. We're talking with Judith Fine. And if you go, if you really want a fun adventure, go to her website, globaladventure.us. And you can read her writings. She is a uh, she's a well known um, travel journalist, winning award winning travel journalist. Also, um, just great insight into how to get more out of life, how to spark your spirit of adventure. We'll come back get a few more ideas from Judith Fine up next, right here on the Matt Townsend Show. The Matt Townsend Show. We are joined by uh, writer and winning journalist, travel journalist Judith Fine. Judith is an award-winning travel journalist who um, is the author of a couple books: "Life Is a Trip: The Transformative Magic of Travel" and "The Spoon from Minkowitz," which talks about a lot about um, the emotional journey and importance of researching your own genealogy. By the way, two books that. Uh, We've already kind of talked about just in the, the power of creating adventure. You, and you don't have to travel far and abroad. You can do this all in your own backyard. Judith Fine, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Matt. Love having you on. I mean, a lot of this, like you said, it's just connecting, right? It's it's about making a connection with the humans that you're around. With the humans you're around. Okay, so I have another question. Today. Yeah. Is that okay? Yeah, please. Where do your ancestors come from? Uh, Scotland and Ireland. And how far back do you know? Um, well, I know pretty far back. Uh, well, my my family knows pretty far back, but uh, probably 400 years. Wow, that's pretty unusual. Yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of the Mormon connection, right? We're big yeah, into genealogy. Okay, so what I've been doing, another thing with connection and making your life an adventure, <clears throat> what I've become from my last book, is I'm calling myself an emotional genealogist. Hmm. So it's not about the names and dates, which you're lucky enough yeah. to know. If you know yeah. more about influences, of course. But this is about tracking back the behaviors in your family and what you have inherited. So in other words, you know, was there you know, cold withholding behavior? Was there aggressive behavior? Was there, um, you know, punishing behavior? What were the behaviors? And not, you know, there were the good ones, of course. But what are the not necessarily good behaviors that have been passed down in your family? And what this requires is to start really talking to people, especially older people in your family, about how did, uh, you know, Uncle Mel treat Aunt uh, Susie, right? Mm. 
And, and get the stories, right? And, and hear the stories. And hear the stories and then see how they have impacted you in your life. Because even if you don't know the stories, they do. Yeah. They impact every choice you make, every decision. So I've been doing this, emotional genealogy. And what happens is I start talking to other people about it. Like I'll say to them, like I say to you, you know, um, where do your, your ancestors come from? Yeah. You know, and if I'm lucky, it's someone like you. You say, I know back for 400 years. But then I say, what are some of the behaviors that, you know, what did your mother and father, how did your mother right. and father to treat you and how did their parents treat them so that you understand how you fit in and people love to Oh, I think that. that's fantastic. And then you can share these stories. And what's amazing, too, is... Just hearing somebody's accent or hearing somebody's name, you can then start saying that you could just ask that simple question, which is if you notice how good you are at that, Judith, that's maybe the journalist in you. You you ask the questions and the questions people like to talk about themselves to some degree. They like to talk about themselves if they are listened to. That's the second Mm. equation. That does talking of, excuse me, allergies in Santa Fe. But just talking about yourself is a kind of selfie. It's like yeah. taking a selfie. You know? yeah. Look at me, look at me. But if you talk about yourself, and if someone talks about herself, his, himself, and you are an, a really good listener, then something happens. There's transformation between the two of you. And people will open up and tell you things you will not believe. But you know what? Then you also talk to them with a little less fear and a little more intimacy. And suddenly your conversation becomes an adventure rather than just, um, you know, hi, how you doing? Right. No, I think that's beautiful. And, and, then, and then there's something that changes when two humans connect at that kind of deeper level. And even if you won't see this person again, you've etched that experience back into your soul like we talked yes, about. Yes, absolutely. But this is also true. It doesn't have to be someone from another culture, mm. but it's really good to engage with people who are different from you. How about, you know, kids? Yeah. Maybe your whole world is an adult world. You start talking to kids, but you really listen to them. And suddenly, or let's say that you're walking down the street, you know, walking is still a good activity. <laughs> right. You're walking down the street, and you see kids playing this game. And you say to them, what, what's that game that you're playing? And they'll say, oh, it's called Fugga Bunga Bunga, right? Yeah. And, and you say, how do you play it? And the next thing you know, you're playing this game with the kids. Hmm. And then you go home and you tell whomever you live with, you say, well, I just played this game, blah, 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 blah. Something has happened to you that pulls you out of the ordinary predictability of your, your life. Mm. And you've had an adventure, and then you tell someone about the adventure, and they say, oh, you want to hear this, the, 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 the game that these kids I know play? And everything is a learning and exchange so that you're excited to get out of bed in the morning. Yeah. And, and yeah, life, life's an adventure. Life seems new. Judith, we have about 20 seconds, but tell me what, what's, what's another thing? What's the one thing we maybe need to make sure we focus on to keep alive in our own lives? What's the one thing we need? That I love you. That's the one thing. That you meet a person who is different from you. And you just feel this kind of human, hey, I love you, who are you? Hmm. About anybody, whether it's somebody that you may be afraid of or is different from you, I, I, to, to kind of wake up in the morning and greet people with love. And that doesn't mean you have to kiss them on the lips. Right, right. But just feeling a human, allowing yourself, permitting yourself to feel a human connection, it's the best thing for your soul. Oh, it's so true, Judith. And you can just feel the spirit 
of goodness when we connect with people. And yeah. and and we loved hearing your stories and your insight. Everybody, go again. Uh, go check out uh, Judith Fine's website, globaladventure.us. we got to get that spirit where we do love each other and we're curious. If you notice how much of that is just curiosity about the people around you, remain curious. Good stuff. We'll take a break, my friends. Stick with us. We'll come right back. Talk to our good friends down at BYU Sports Nation. See what's coming up on their show in just a bit. We'll be right back. Take care. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Ooh, a little Jaws music for you. We're going to shoot it down to Spencer and Jerem, our good buddies down at BYU Sports Nation. Hello, gentlemen. Perfect theme music for Jerem's Weeblows Day Camp yesterday. Matt. Is that where he was? <laughs> Jerem. BB guns and archery and stuff. <laughs> you, make it, you made it back from, uh, from camp, uh, what's it called? Um, Weeblows Day Camp. Yeah, up at Tracy Wigwam. Nope. Buck Hollow. Okay. That sounds great, too. Hey, um, happy happy Shark Awareness Day. I'm aware. Are you aware? Spencer loves it when we have a good day. We do a lot. We need to take action, right? Did you see any sharks at at, uh, Weeblow's Day Camp? Um, No. No. There's not a lot of sharks in Utah. Some deer. Yeah, I saw some deer. Yeah. The deer shark's a dangerous one. That they rack. look like deer, but they're actually sharks. It's, it's like, how do you swim with that big rack on your head? Hey, um, <laughs> I've got some good news for you guys, uh, and, and then a question. I was worried. I don't know if you saw what's happening. Uh, the Russian government launched a new se- a safe selfie campaign. When you say Russian government launched, I immediately get nervous. Yeah, no, no, no. Not missiles. Just, oh. just a safe selfie campaign. Yeah. Encouraging citizens not to put their lives at risk so that they can get likes on social media. Which is smart. Sound advice. Uh-huh. The campaign, Governmental advice. <laughs> the campaign uh, ministry official Yelena Alexeyeva said that they created a booklet with illustrations of selfie-taking no-nos, including posing with firearms, climbing an electrical pylon, or standing in front of an oncoming train or car. You also should not hang from a rooftop or get close to wildlife. To take a selfie. Does this have to be explained? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, well, not everything's parkour, right? No, no. Okay. Hey, <laughs> kids, kids, go go pet the bear. Go pet the bear. Mama's going to take a picture. Hey, so what, uh, what, what would you add to the list of things we ought not take our selfies around? Uh... I took a selfie with my uh, two-year-old while she was crying. I thought that was funny. That's dangerous. No, that's yeah. That's then, yeah. Some call that abuse. Said, look how silly you look. You don't have to cry so much. <laughs> yeah, that's fun to video when they're crying because yeah. when they're older, yeah. you can use that. Yeah. To you know, absolutely right. Get what you got to get. Reasoning with your two-year-old by showing her pictures of her crying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It usually works when they're There's more no like four. With any two-year-old, but anyway. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No. Well, um, so I know we you guys didn't give you much. No, there. yeah, I mean, Sorry I hope about that. No, I just hope you guys get more on your show, huh? Weird. Maybe I'll, <laughs> maybe I'll take a selfie today during the show. 
I think Logan it, has done it. I'll tell you where you don't That's take true. selfies is on the sideline of a football game. Because people Wait, die. Not? You'll die. Why would you die for taking Kathy a Kathy Aiken tells a story about, a, and she won't name names, but of a sports person that got hit by a running back because he wasn't paying attention. Was it a Lemma Harrington? And he made a little sissy grunt noise <laughs> when he um, when he got hit. It well, wasn't a Lemma. If you're dumb, do it during the play, right? Yeah, yeah. D- between it. plays, there's a lot of sure. time. Here, hey, well, In here, fact, way more time than the actual come, play. Here comes everybody. <laughs> click. Yeah. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Oh, now click. Uh, at a baseball game, I would be careful. Yeah, I would too. During a pitch. Oh, there! Foul ball listen, coming at you. you have to be engaged in what is happening at a baseball game. I went. I went to so the AAA affiliate of the uh, Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim of California of, of Dodger, the Lakers, or, yeah, Dodger yeah, Anaheimville of the of the Major League Baseball is in Salt Lake. So I went to a game there, but we were on the front row, t- just just beyond the netting. Ooh, oh, and I had boy. a tear. I was nervous the whole time. Yeah, no, that you need, foul ball was That's where you got to take your mitt. It's you just true. take your mitt. And then you you don't have to be nervous. Yeah, we see because it's there's risk there, but there's also greatness because a dude gave us a bat from inside really? the dugout. You know what I mean? So That's you, way you have cool. to be careful. Yeah, but you have to be careful. I've seen multiple instances. There was a there was a dude. Was it at a Dodgers game or a Cubs game? Cubs game, I think. Caught he had a he was feeding a baby oh, in his no. hand and caught a foul ball. No, I saw that. I saw that. That's, Crazy. That is elite. Now, oh, is he no. taking a no. selfie while he did that? That is the ultimate moment in yeah. human history. And I don't think, with like the All-Star game and stuff, I don't think any player ought to be taking a selfie while they're in the batter's box in the middle of the game. I say they should periscope. Take it up a notch. Wouldn't that be cool? Do a little periscoping while he's in the batter's box. <laughs> hey, what's up, guys? Uh, just getting ready to go <laughs> up and have a bat. It's all fun and games. <laughs> hey, guys, um, are you still doing your show? I mean, I know Jerem's got scouts this week, but um, did are you guys still going to keep doing it? Or Despite the severe pushback from Jerem coming off of a Weeblos Day Camp vacation. <laughs> severe we, vacation, pushback? We have decided to go through with the show. That's great. Yeah, I'm Weeblos glad. vacation? Those two, that's like oil and water, dude. Yeah. That's like surgery vacation. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Not the same. Oh yeah, we're gonna we're gonna do it. What 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 are you gonna talk about? We're talking about the meanest, fiercest, nastiest position on the football field: the linebackers. (laughs) We've got Brady Papinga, Super Bowl champion for the Green Bay Packers, former BYU linebacker, great on the show. He listen. He is very very opinionated and knowledgeable, not only just about football in general, but about BYU because his brother. Is one of the coaches on the BYU football staff. Oh, there so you go. His insight. He, yeah. He's basically telling us really all cool. the trade secrets for Se- this year. Secrets come out that aren't supposed to come out, but you know, we interesting. Kid. And it, uh, we kid. He's ve- he's an analyst, uh, you know, broadcaster. He's he's great. He's great. He's going to be great. Check it out later. And then our opinions on what does BYU do with Bronson Kafusi? Uh huh. They moved him around. He's BYU's best defensive player. How do they use him? And who are the emerging stars in BYU's defense? Do they have NFL talent? Is Bronson mix? BYU's best defensive player? Absolutely. That's it's incredible. Not it's not even close. That's awesome. And he's he's a great basketball player. That's his brother, Corbin. Oh, that's Corbin. He did play on the basketball team though, two years ago. What is the deal with the Kafusi family? Okay, and they had a younger or an older a, sister who a daughter, played. Uh, yeah, played basketball on the women's basketball yeah, team. She was yeah. great. And I've met the mom. She's fantastic. It's got to be the mom, right? She's pretty good. Steve Steve is quite athletic. Michelle is 
uh, an athlete in her own right. Wouldn't you love in to fact, have... we shot a commercial with those guys about who's the better athlete in the house. And? It's kind of... I'm going to tell you the plot. I'm going to reveal this. Look this... it up on IMDb or something, man. Hey, I Pinnacle pulled... moment? Just kidding. It'll, it'll air, I think, uh, in, uh, starting in August. Oh, man. You guys are big. I mean, first Weeblos camp. The Kafusis are big. Commercials, Kafusis. Man, I'd give anything to be like you guys. Never going to happen. You need to aspire higher, <laughs> Matt. I don't know. Doc? I got to be. Doc Brown? If I could just be, if I could do Weeblos camp and a commercial in one week, then. You'd have made it. I'm big league. You'd have made it. Big hey, listen, league. I've got to eat my. <laughs> I've got to eat my Rice Krispie Treat before the show, man. Okay? Speaking of made it, do you want to eat that Rice Krispie Treat right now? I heard you opening it. That's kind of rude. It's delicious. Well, don't Mm. let us stop you. This is breakfast (sighs) for Spencer. He's not lying. This is my breakfast You should eat more. It's because he sleeps in till 11. Yeah, nope. Okay. Nope. How's it tasting? It's so yummy. Does it taste like marshmallow? It tastes like deliciousness. It's my favorite homemade snack. Mmm. That this? and chick- chocolate chip cookies right out of the oven. You know I what? Co- I cooked a pizza last night, and my two-year-old said, cookies? And I said, no, and she got so sad. <laughs> I love your, I love your I voice of your, of your two-year-old. Cookies? It's beautiful. Um, I'm going to, just so you know, when I'm, I'm going to let you guys go. But I'm going to finish my show in five minutes. Then it's you. But while you guys are in the middle of your show, I'm going to be eating pizza. Okay. Pizza at 10 a.m.? No. I was just saying that to Why make you Why do you jealous. lie to us? I don't why? know. It just felt right. I don't know <laughs> why. You sit on a throne of My lies. lie just felt so right. <laughs> anyway, guys, have a great show. Hope you clean your teeth, Spence. It, the Rice Krispies. It's, you know. It's, it's good. It's transparent. It's, it's all good. good. It's all good. Have a great yeah. show. And Thanks, sir. Have Thanks, fun Doc. at Weeblos Camp tomorrow, Jerem, again. Nope. Okay, we're done. All right. Good luck. You know, that is hard, going to Weeblos Camp. Holy cow. Boy. That, you got to be a strong man to go to Weeblos camp. That's some tough kids. Hey, you know, when we end the show, uh, we always like to talk about a hero of the day. Today, we've got a hero, amazing hero. You've heard of her before. She's a Nobel Peace Prize winner, Malala Yousafzai. Malala Yousafzai. And she is, uh, she basically was the youngest recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize. She's 18 years old. She just celebrated at her birthday. And she was the one, if you remember, that was shot um, shot in the face by the Taliban. Okay, so here's the story. Malala, the Pakistani education activist and youngest winner of the Nobel Peace Prize, turned 18 on Sunday and opened a school in Lebanon for Syrian refugee girls. Malala became a hero back in 2012 when she survived being shot in the head by the Taliban. She then left with with her family to England following the attack where she continued to fight for the young girl's rights to receive an education. On her 18th birthday, Malala has made a huge impact for that cause. The Malala Fund, her nonprofit organization, paid for the school that will be welcome 200 girls between the ages of 14 and 18 near the Syrian border. She said, I'm honored to mark my 18th birthday with the brave and inspiring girls of Syria. Yousafzai said in a speech, I'm here on behalf of the 28 million children who are kept from the classroom because of the armed conflict. Their courage and dedication continue uh, to their, uh, their courage and dedication to continue their schooling in difficult conditions inspires people around the world. And it is our duty to stand by them. So that's it right there. 
Malala, you are the hero of the day on the Matt Townsend Show. What a powerful example. 18 years old, just got shot because she was going to school. And then didn't just sit down and play the victim. She stood up and raised money and now is changing the lives of hundreds of others, millions of others, really, if you think about it. That's that's the good in the world, folks. So when you sit back and you wonder, is there anything good going on? You know what? You got Malala and you've got millions of other good people like that that are doing the best they can. Again, that's the show. We can't do it without you. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back tomorrow, 9 to noon Eastern time. More ideas, more tools to help you find the good in the world. Until then, take care and make it a great one.